If given the choice, would you rather hear a story or a bunch of facts? I know we're all wired a little bit differently and some of our brains are different than others. But I think all things being equal, for the most part, we would prefer a story. We tolerate facts, but we give attention to story. Story entertains, it informs, it involves, it motivates, it authenticates, and it mirrors our true existence. Apart from personal experience, stories really are the quickest way to learning. Well, Jesus, the Master Teacher, knew this. Which is why He taught so much in parables. In fact, of all the teaching we have recorded in Scripture, 35% of it about comes in the form of a parable. Well, a parable is not merely a story. In its broadest sense, it refers to an expanded or extended analogy. Parables are fictitious sayings which give us a picture of truth. Or to adopt the words of a modern poet, parables are imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Well, over the past year, as I've had the opportunity to speak, to preach, I've chosen a parable. And what a joy it's been for me to study parables and to see the divine truths, to see the real toads that are so effectively exposed through their brilliant placements in the imaginary gardens of real in everyday life. So this morning, we are going to consider the parable of the great banquet. The parable of the great banquet, which we find in Luke chapter 14. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter number 14. And the parable that we're going to be considering this morning comes doesn't doesn't appear doesn't come until verses 15 and 16. But in order to understand it rightly, we need to get the context. We need to be led into this parable as Jesus told it. So begin we'll begin at verse 1. Please follow along as I read Luke 14 beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler and the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, 
give up your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at a table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So we see here that Jesus was in the middle of a Sabbath day dinner party, probably a lunch, and this lunch grew to be a bit intense. Tension filled the room the moment Jesus walked in because verse 1 says He was being carefully watched. Watched by the Pharisees and watched by the religious leaders. Well, the tension increased when He healed a man of dropsy, which, which was a disease that that led to a significant accumulation of fluid under the skin, Jesus healed him. And then He silenced His would-be critics with a nifty question in verse 3 and an allusion to their own rabbinical practice of rescuing animals, but not rescuing people on the Sabbath day. There's more. Jesus went on to criticize both the guests and the hosts. The guests were seeking to sit in the places of honor. And he criticized the hosts for inviting only those who could return the favor. Only those who would invite them to their banquet. So, in one way or another, pretty much everybody in this room had been insulted by Jesus. I think it's safe to say there probably wasn't a lot of food being eaten at this time. There was not much laughter in frivolity. In fact, as the text tells us, there was silence. And I imagine there was lots of silence. And it was probably awkward silence. In the midst of this awkward silence, a quick-tongued guest attempted to save the day and dispel the uncomfortable tension. Notice what he says in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I sort of picture it almost as if he was, he was offering a toast of sorts. As he lifted his glass and said, despite our differences, won't it be nice for all of us to experience the blessing of eating God's feast when he reasserts his rule fully? And glasses probably went up all around the room. Yeah, sure, I'll toast to that. The pious language of this toast to themselves evoked everyone's assent, and it offered a monetary hope 
of escaping Jesus' barrage, Jesus' onslaught. But any such hope was rather short-lived. Jesus did not lift His glass for this toast. And He was not about to let this comment pass. So Jesus responds with a parable. The parable of the great banquet. And as seems to be almost always the case, Jesus' response was not exactly what the guests were expecting to hear. We pick up the parable in verse 16. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything now is ready. So in this parable, a very wealthy man had extended an invitation to his friends to attend a great banquet. And the, the banquet was great, because the list of guests, those invited, was really long. And it was great because the food, the amount of food, the quality of food and drink would have been top of the top. So this was a feast that no one would want to miss. For in that day, in that day, in this culture, far more than today, Banquets were among the most important contexts for social relations. Did you catch in the previous verses Jesus talking to them about shame and honor? Oh, that was huge for them. In, in their, their, so much of their social life was tied to these banquets. It meant the world to them. And no one would want to miss this banquet. Well, there would be two invitations. You would receive the initial invitation that would announce the banquet was coming. And then kind of like our RSVPs, pretty much the same thing, you would respond. And you would say, yes, I intend to come to your banquet. Then on the day of the banquet, on the day of the party, the owner would offer a second invitation. And this invitation would come from his servants as he would send out his servants to announce that the food was ready, the party was starting, it's time to come, everything's ready to go. So the master sends out his servants for invitation number two. And we see what happens next, verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife. And therefore, I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. It's pretty incredible. It's pretty striking that all of those who had been invited declined. 
with one accord or all at once, they offered an excuse. Three of which are shared by Jesus as representative of the whole group. The first had to do with land. Land. And there are some here who who criticize these excuses and say, oh, come on. Who's going to buy land without looking at it first? Or who's going to buy oxen without looking? No one would do that. Well, I think it's I think it's likely and probable that they did see the land first. But in this day and in this culture, a big purchase like this was arranged on condition of a later inspection and a later approval. It was a legal obligation that was required to complete the sale. But, We would think he could have done that and completed the sale sometime after the banquet. The second guy's reason here is that he just bought five pair of oxen. And that was a lot. The typical farm, the typical um, landowner in this time would really only need two yoke of oxen. So this guy was really rich. And just like with the land, he says he needed to go see the oxen in order to finalize the purchase, in order to finalize the deal. I suspect he saw them before. But, just like the guy with the land, he probably could have waited till after the banquet. The third excuse is probably the most plausible, makes the most sense. The guy says, I've just been married and I've got to go. I can't come. There were laws in the Old Testament that allowed newlyweds to get out of certain vital responsibilities, like going to war. You didn't have to go to war within a year after you were married. There were other public duties. So there's a sense in which this this excuse is the most legitimate and most valid. I don't think the case here is that his wife, his new bride, told him, no, you can't go to the banquet. I'm doubtful that they missed their premarital counseling course on male-female husband-wife roles. But most likely, this banquet would have only been for men. And so he opted out of the banquet because his new bride couldn't go. And he just wanted to be with her. So after hearing these excuses, the servant goes back and tells the master about the last second cancellation. (laughs) And the host finds himself in a dilemma. Does he postpone the party? Reschedule? Find a better time that's going to work for all the people he invited? Uh, The food's out and ready. Or does he go ahead? Or does he go ahead with the banquet that he had prepared? Picking back up in verse 21. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. 
Jesus says that this guy was a little bit upset. In fact, he was angry when he heard these excuses. And there's a sense in which he had a right to be angry. Everyone who said they were going to come bailed on him. I mean, he'd spent a lot of money. He'd spent a ton of time and effort into killing animals, preparing all the food. They didn't have Costco back then. It was a massive process. These men said they would be there. Their place at the table was set. Food was prepared for them. Their name tag was sitting by their plate. And to back out and not show up like this, it was incredibly rude. And in this day and age, it was a huge insult to do this. Totally unacceptable to back out after saying yes to the first invitation. Well, rather than waste what had been prepared, the host decided that the party would go on as scheduled. So he sends out his servants to find people to fill the seats. The streets here that they're sent out to were broader and traveled by lots of different types of people. The lanes that are referenced were a small side path, kind of off the beaten path. And on the lanes would be the outcasts of society, the loiterers, those who didn't really have a place in city life. And those that the Master says to bring from these places were precisely the same types of people Jesus had told the host to invite in verse 13. Did you catch that? In verse 13, He said, invite the poor and the lame and the blind. And these are the types of people Jesus tells the servants, go out and get. Well, they did that, but there was still room. There were still empty seats. So the Master told them to go this time outside of town. Go outside of town into the country. People there were even more distant and separated from the life and society there in the city. These people did not know the Master. They would not have known the Master at all. Hey, the servants could have told the Master's name and like, huh? I don't know that guy. They were the outcasts of society who probably had never even been invited to a banquet. And they knew how culture worked. That society worked. And they knew there is no way I could return the favor to the Master if I go and eat at that banquet. So the Master knew it would take some persuading to convince these people to come. Well, they came. And finally, all the seats are filled. All the food is eaten. But it's by guess that no one, no one expected to be there. So Jesus concludes in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste My banquet. None of those men who were invited shall taste My banquet. 
Well, just like the parable we looked at last week of the Pharisee and tax collector, the sting, the sting in this parable comes in the tail. The force of Jesus' words are felt strongest here at the end. Those who should be at the banquet aren't there. They don't even get a crouton. And those who shouldn't be there are sitting at the table feasting with the Master. I mean, imagine the response of these religious leaders who heard this parable. We thought it was quiet before Jesus started talking. It's even more quiet now. So as we work towards applying this parable to our lives, just a couple points of interpretation as we work towards seeing where we fit in this parable. First, is that the great banquet Jesus speaks of here pictures the ultimate banquet. It pictures the feast that Revelation 19 describes as the marriage supper of the Lamb. This symbol of feast in, for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it would have been very familiar to the Jews. These religious leaders would have got what this image was about. They had read Isaiah 25. So they knew this imagery and what it meant. And as this symbol is of great, this symbol is of great spiritual significance because it suggests eternal satisfaction. Eternal satisfaction. Even in our world, even in this world, a banquet is about so much more than just filling your stomach. A banquet today in our world is about far more than just the food. And what the kingdom of heaven is really about. What will make this banquet truly great isn't the food. It's the host, Jesus Christ. The celebration will be ultimately joyous because of Him. Ultimate satisfaction at this banquet will come from Christ. Jolene's grandmother passed away this past Tuesday at the age of 96. And she finally entered the great banquet that she'd been longing to attend for so many years. Well, on Friday, just before the family was to enter the auditorium for the funeral, I heard, I heard Jolene's uncle telling a story about how he would debate with his mother whether or not there would be food in heaven. Uncle Brian apparently would insist that there would be. He specifically mentioned ice cream and steak. But Grandma Hazel wasn't quite as excited about this prospect as Uncle Brian was. And she told Brian that if, if he was thinking about food in heaven, that his heart was really in the wrong place. You see, Grandma Hazel understood that this banquet is great because of the host. And our joy and satisfaction at this feast will come from His presence. 
a second point of interpretation has to do with the invitations that we see in this parable. There are many who conclude that the first invitation Jesus talks about here represents the call to Jewish people given throughout all of the Old Testament. And that since as a nation they rejected Messiah, these subsequent invitations represent the inclusion of the outcasts and then the Gentiles as part of God's salvation plan. I think it's very possible that this is what Jesus had in mind, especially when we consider, if you just were to look back at chapter 13, verses 28 through 30, in those verses, Jesus essentially makes that point. But regardless, regardless, those who refuse the invitation, we don't want to limit them to Pharisees only. Nor should those who rejected the first invitation be broadened to include all Jews, for there's a lot of Jews who did follow Jesus' teaching. But what's necessary in this analogy of the invitations? What we need to know is this, that there are people who reject and others to whom the invitation is extended. We turn now then to three points of application. Three points of application as we bring this parable down into the nitty-gritty of our daily lives. First, there's an invitation to be accepted. There's a warning to be heeded. And there's a mission to be accomplished. First, an invitation to be accepted. In reading this parable, we have to ask ourselves a question. A big question. A really important question. And that is this. Have you accepted the invitation to God's great banquet? Will you be there? You really shouldn't be. None of us deserve a place at the table In fact, not a single one of us even deserve an invitation to this banquet. Because of sin, we are all by nature spiritually poor. All of us are spiritually crippled, blind, and lame. We're perfectly content to wallow in the gutter of self. In the words of the Apostle Paul, you were actually dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's all of us. But but while in this horrific state, as an enemy of God, He showed His love to you by sending Jesus Christ to die on a cross. And there on the cross, Jesus absorbed God's holy wrath, the just penalty for your sin. And three days later, God raised Him from the tomb is validation that Christ's sacrifice for sin was complete and accepted. And God promises in His Word, that if you will turn from your sin, 
Leave the slums, the gutters of your selfish living and place your trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Then He'll make you alive together with Christ all by grace. And He promises to raise you up with Him and seat Him with Him in heavenly places. To seat you with Him at His great banquet. So God is offering to you through Christ a seat at the table. A seat at His great eternal banquet. What have you done with that invitation? How have you responded to it? Are you going to be there? With the words of the prophet Isaiah, I appeal to you to come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Come to me that your soul may live. There's an invitation. There's an invitation given to be accepted. Second, there's a warning to be heeded. There's a warning to be heeded. And this, I think, is the most direct in the most pointed application from this parable. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are expecting to be at God's great banquet. If someone were to ask you if you would, were going to be there, absolutely, yes. But did you catch the main point of this parable? Did you catch the main point? Just because you expect to be there doesn't necessarily mean that you will be. It's a very serious warning to all who are religious. All of us who are familiar with the things of Christ, this is a warning. It's a serious warning. Because we see here in this parable that it is very possible it is very possible for you to mistake familiarity with what Jesus said for a genuine faith in what Jesus did. And that very well may explain why there's a disconnect between what you claim to believe and the way in which you actually live. You can be saying the right things, you can be going to the right places, but not be a true follower of Christ. Over and over, Jesus makes it clear that not all who profess faith in Christ will continue to the end and be saved. Why not? Why is that the case? What well, we see here in this parable that those who were expecting to be at the great banquet we could say those today who would profess to be Christians. In this parable, those people actually wanted to have the kingdom. They wanted the kingdom. Oh yeah, I'm going to be there. But they wanted the kingdom on their own terms. They wanted the feast to fit into their lives. But when the second invitation came, 
it became very apparent that their possessions, their human relationships, good things, land and oxen and wife, good things, what became apparent is that these good things were actually more important to them than their desire for the kingdom. It ought to really sober us. This has got to sober us as we consider that good things in this life can actually challenge our supreme loyalty to Christ. Good things in this life can challenge our supreme loyalty to Christ. As John Piper has said, for all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of His love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not His enemies, but His gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of the earth. The pleasures we get from our stuff and the pleasure that we gain from our human relationships really are the biggest obstacles to following Christ. And it was for this reason that Jesus talked about this over and over. In chapter 18 of Luke, we, 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 we see a story where a rich man comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? I want to follow you. Jesus says, okay, take everything you have, take all of your stuff and sell it. Give it to the poor. Then come. Then follow me. And as the story unfolds, he was not willing to do that. And he left Jesus sad. Jesus goes on to say after that story that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, a man with lots of stuff to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also talked about this in Luke 14, the chapter we're in, after this parable is over. Picking up at verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied Him, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me, He starts talking about family, human relationships. The person comes and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower, get some more stuff, does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, All who see it begin to mock Him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce All that He has cannot be My disciple. 
it's clear from the teaching of Christ that we cannot have the kingdom of God on our own terms. We cannot have the kingdom of God on our own terms. In the words of one author, the kingdom comes with limitless grace, but it brings with it limitless demands. The invitation to God's table is sheer grace, but it is never, it is never cheap grace. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know that your reasons for not choosing to attend God's banquet are excuses. You know the excuses. You have them. And just like those in the parable, you would come to admit that the bottom line is you really don't want to go to this banquet. You don't want to go. If that's you, Let me just say two things. First, however wonderful your possessions, however wonderful your relationships with people may be, they cannot. They will never bring you the joy and satisfaction that's found in Christ. All of your stuff, all of your human relationships will one day inevitably disappoint you. And one day they will inevitably Destroy your soul. You're not promised another minute. You're not promised another hour. You're not promised another year. So don't presume upon God's gracious invitation to His banquet. Just let your idols go. And come. Come to the banquet of God. There's an invitation to be accepted. There's a warning to be heeded. And finally, there's a mission to be accomplished. There's a mission to be accomplished. Now, this parable is not primarily about our mission to share the good news of the banquet with others. Not the main point here. However, it does provide a very strong basis for some important reflections on this calling we have from the host. The calling to share the news and to invite others. You see, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is still like a banquet. And the invitation can still go out. Everything is ready. And people may come and enjoy the feast now. And the point of being invited, the point of being invited is not to pull up our chair and sit down and take a bite of the amazing food and say, I'm so glad I got in. This banquet is amazing. No. No, if we've truly said yes to the invitation, we must have a longing to share the invitation with others. And as we reflect on this mission, I think there's three points here worth considering about our witness. The first is that our witness should be joyful. Our witness should be joyful. We can look at this call to invite others to the banquet as a duty. It is a command, right? So, so we can look at it as a duty and have the mindset, well, I'm commanded to invite others, so I guess I better do it now and then. God's prepared a banquet. God has prepared a banquet 
that is both present and future. And we have the privilege of inviting other people to come. All this ought to fill us with joy. And it should be apparent to others as we invite them that we're motivated by joy. It ought to be apparent to us. I know, I know personally very well that at times this is hard. It's seldom easy to invite others to the feast. And in fact, it's not even always fun. But our witness must be marked by joy. It must be motivated and marked by joy. Our witness should be joyful. Second, our witness should be urgent. Our witness should be urgent. In verse 23, as as the Master sent them out a second time, he, He says to go out and compel them to come in. Now there are many throughout history, not the least of which was Augustine, who used this verse as justification for using coercive physical force to get people to convert, come to church. Now there's all sorts of problems with that. But the most notable one is that you cannot convert anyone by physical force. I can put a sword to your neck. That is not going to give you spiritual life. It may cause you to conform to certain laws as we've seen in the history of Islam. But it cannot bring about spiritual rebirth. It can never make you a Christian. Well, this invitation was compelling in the sense that it was surprising. None of these people expected to be there. They knew they didn't match the profile of the normal invitee. And this invitation was urgent. The food was there. It's going to spoil. It's not only going to get cold, it's going to rot. So come. There's urgency. So the Master knew that there would be a need for what Manson calls insistent hospitality. Compel them to come. Insistently convince with love. These people would need some convincing that there was indeed a spot at the table for them, food for them to eat, and a wonderful time for them to enjoy. Witnessing. Our, our sharing of the Gospel is not a sales pitch. Right? It's not. I'm so glad it's not. I can't convince anyone to come to this banquet. It's so encouraging for me to know that it is God's Spirit through His Word that opens eyes and changes hearts. But as we trust God to work, we must talk about the urgency of salvation. It's the truth. You must respond to this invitation. The time of opportunity one day is going to end. Our witness should be joyful. It should be urgent. And last, our witness should be indiscriminate. Our witness should be indiscriminate. Do you ever find yourself choosing who to share the Gospel with based upon how likely you think it is that they will respond? I sure do. Boy, I sure do. So just Thursday night, 
walking around the block in our neighborhood, two Mormon missionaries. And I had in my mind the thought, they're not going to the banquet. Why even bother saying anything? They're not going to be there. Perhaps a classmate or coworker who parties hard every weekend and is convinced that you have no idea how to have fun and you think in your mind, they're not going. They'll never show up at the banquet. Or perhaps a family member who's wealthy, sweet, they never complain, everything's just wonderful, and your thoughts are, nope, nope, they're not going to be at the banquet. How do we know? In all of these, in many, many more, how do we know? Well, that would be true if we were writing the guest list. But thank God we're not. There are all sorts of people, many of whom are on the margins, that we think would never come to the banquet. And so we don't even bother to invite them. But Jesus says, go out. Go out and with urgency, invite them to come. See, it's God who makes the guest list. And He is totally sovereign over who will attend the banquet. But we must go out into our world and invite everyone without discrimination. Well, this parable that Jesus told to a bunch of Pharisees and religious leaders many, many, many years ago contains rich and eternal truth for us today. We see in this parable an invitation that we need to accept. We see a warning that we better pay attention to. And we see a mission that we need to fulfill. A mission that needs to be accomplished. May God give us all the grace to see these truths. And may God give us the grace to respond to them. Please pray with me.